Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have part two with the one and only Dr. Mike Israel from Renaissance Periodization. We had Mike on previously. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was when this airs, but make sure you go check that out. I'm going to link that in the show notes. I'm also going to link their YouTube channel and a recent blog that he wrote um, that we mentioned in the podcast about at-home training, um, which is basically supplying people to do what they need to do when they have minimal equipment or they are stuck at home without a gym and how you can still make gains. So really good blog, um, and they are putting out a ton of great content on, on YouTube showing some of these at-home workouts and just showing different strategies and methods inside the gym, which I think are highly valuable that you should check out. Today, we dive into more of the dieting side of things. Last time, we talked about the fundamentals of hypertrophy, and we covered stimulus to fatigue ratio, periodization for muscle growth, um, and also a couple other topics around specificity for hypertrophy. Today, we're going to dive into the diet realm. So we're going to talk about high-carb diets and when they are applicable in a fat loss phase as well as a massing phase and just how far you can take that. We're going to talk about at-home workouts and how to optimize those and how to be creative with your program design, which is going to be really useful for a lot of you. Um, and then we round out the podcast talking a little bit about how your training should change and shift as you start to go into a cut and in a deficit. And if you should be changing your training volume or intensity and frequency and things like that. Um, and we even throw in some bro talk at the end that I think is actually pretty applicable. So if you guys like this show, please do me a huge favor, post it on your Instagram and tag us both. You can tag Mike at RP Dr. Mike, that's all one word, and then you can tag me at Cody.boomboom. If you like the show, take a screenshot, share it on your story, tag us both. We want to thank you for listening and share it on our story as well. And without any further ado, let's get on to the amazing interview with the one and only Dr. Mike Israel. All right, so round two with Mike Israel. I'm excited for this one, man. And the first question I have for you is how you've been managing training. Uh, while this whole quarantine thing is going on. It, it's been really cool watching your Instagram in this gym that you guys have created kind of manifest and get bigger and bigger. And now you have these tents. So it's like, it's epic. But um, I'm just curious, how are, how are you managing the volume and the training intensity with minimal equipment? And what are your big focuses? Yeah, so I actually have an article on Renaissance Periodization website uh, detailing how uh, adjusting for at-home training can be done and it's way more in depth than anything I can sort of speak to in person. Um, and also it's good because you can just look at it and really get right. thought versus just listening to something. So for folks interested in a more comprehensive explanation, uh, please get, uh, check that out. Um, but, uh, just a couple of those, those things that I've personally incorporated in my own training is, uh, one is you have to pick exercises that, um, stimulate muscle groups you want with minimal equipment, which means you basically have to be creative. Um, you know, normally we would say, okay, I want to train my quads. I'm going to squat. Well, we only have like 200 and some odd pounds to squat with. I mean, that's a lot for these times. You know, so people might have dumbbells. So you say, okay, how do we leverage, you know, we're really not training to squat. We're training the quads to grow. How do we leverage to make the quads the huge limiting factors a very elevated heel is a good thing. So we can squat with our heels on like 25 pound plates and with weightlifting shoes. We can do occlusion training potentially where we wrap bands around our uh, hips and then the thighs are very much a limiting factor. And we can stay very, very upright in our squats. A lot of that, a lot of it's because of the heel. And uh, so the exercise selection and design has to be more creative. Um, for barbell rowing, we have a barbell. We can do different kinds. We can do rows to the chest, rows regular. We can do rows with a pause with a barbell. We can do different grips. Those have been very helpful. We did have the luxury of being able to snag a pull-down machine, which we use three times a week. And that comes in handy with different grips as well, but also different repetition ranges. So a lot of people think, nah, you know, okay, like I have like one exercise to do. Let's say folks have a dumbbell row. 
you know, two two dumbbells, they can do bent over rows, and then be like, man, like this is tough. Like, what am I supposed to do as far as variation? Because I'm going to train back a couple times a week, or I'm going to do the same thing. Well, you can row to the chest, you can row to your hips, you can do pause rows, you can do rows with a, uh, a flexion row where you round your back at the bottom and arch your back at the top. You can do regular rows if you have different weights. Uh, you could use the same exercises with different weights. So like uh, when we do pull downs, we do one pull down session is relatively heavy. Another pull down session is a little bit lighter. So one pull down session is like 15 to 20 rep range on a first set. The other pull down session is 20 to 25 on a first set. And another pull down session is uh, you know even lighter, but it's wide grip pull downs. So we essentially have three exercises we're getting out of that with the loading changes and the hand position changes so that we can do pull downs three times a week, but it doesn't have the monotony psychologically to it as doing pull downs three times a week does, nor does it sort of tax exactly the same, same structures in exactly the same ways, provides a bit of novelty every time. It's a great way to manage fatigue and push stimulus forward. Um, you know, make you used to using squats for all of your quad training and you don't have access to machines, then you can sort of create your own hack spot, so to speak, by putting like a foam roller on a wall and doing that. You might do some, a uh, lot of walking lunges. A lot of supersets can come in really handy where you do some lunges and then you do some squats or vice versa. So you have to look at exercises and try to come up with all of the exercises that you can for a muscle group with limited equipment and then sort of fractal those out with different rep ranges and loading parameters, different pause cadence uh, parameters. So some pause, some not, some top hold for a second, some not, some slow eccentric, some not. And foot positions, hand positions, and different grips. Now all of a sudden you've taken very limited equipment and you've essentially, for lack of a better term, sort of fractaled it out where at every level you have an expansion of options. So you start with push-ups and you think, okay, fuck, that's just one exercise, right? But you have you bifurcate off that. It's loaded push-ups and unloaded push-ups. Then off each of those you bifurcate and slow eccentric push-ups and not slow eccentric push-ups. And off each one of those you bifurcate of close grip, medium grip, and wide grip push-ups. And off all those you bifurcate deficit versus not deficit push-ups. How many different push-ups did we just create? I don't know the numbers in my head, but it's like 16 different variations. And what do you need to do in any one mesocycle? Two, three, let's say five. Well, for love of God, if you use five different variations in every mesocycle, what I just described, you have three mesocycles, a whole training block, and you'll never do the same push-up variation more than once. And then by the time, let's say you need to do a fourth uh, mesocycle, if the quarantine really lasts that long, which it almost certainly won't, uh, then you know you can recycle back to the first set of five exercise variations you used, and all of a sudden you know you used them last like four months ago, so they're as fresh as can be. And it, it's, because it's all push-ups, is there some adaptation that goes on? Is there some anabolic resistance that builds up? Yes, but definitely different than just thinking, you know, relegating yourself to think, damn it, like I only have push-ups. Like, People have literally commented on some of my social media, like, like, so is chest work, you know, you know, really just all push-ups with, uh, with this quarantine stuff? And I, I kind of like, the real answer is no, because if you have bands, you can do some band stuff, which is limited use, I think, to advanced trainees. Beginners find them very uh, efficacious. But if you have like a set of dumbbells, you can do all kinds of flies and other crazy shit. Um, so the answer is really no. But even if it was all push-ups, uh, good God, there are so many variations on push-ups. I forgot even one other bifurcation. Um, uh, putting, putting your feet up on a couch or on a, on a, on a chair, so you decline push-up. Uh, I mean, that's huge, right? That's, that's altogether a different exercise. So, um, you know, all of a sudden you have all these variations. People are always just, it, it's, some people say like, oh, so with just like just dumbbell squats. How do you know how many dumbbell squats you are able to do if you change the variance of cadence, of, of pausing, of foot position, of angle of your heels and your toes? Crazy, crazy, crazy variation. And then the other big point um, is you've got to train hard. Your loading is limited. Your repetitions are going to be higher. And it's been shown that when your repetitions are higher, getting close to failure counts more than if your reps are low and your loading is high. So if you're doing sets of 20 to 30, you've got to get a couple reps away from failure, which is brutal and feels feel like way worse than getting a couple reps away from failure. Like set of five, if you're one rep from fail, you just kind of like the weight moves slower. And then when you fail, you're like, uh, uh, you know, there's not a lot of discomfort. It's just heavy. 
getting five away from fail or two away from fail on a set of 28, I mean, the last reps is like, oh my God, am I really going to do this? I know I can, but it's going to hurt a lot. So you got to push yourself. And then you can use things like my reps and stuff where you rest a very short amount of times so you know, you don't have to take three minutes between uh, exercises or so between sets. You can do, you know, 10 seconds or so. And then the next set doesn't have to be super high reps, but it still gets closer to failure because of the target muscles. And you can't do that on all exercises, but you can do it on a bunch. So that's a good approach. It's not the best way to train, but when you're limited equipment and limited load, it is a very good way to train. So train hard. The next recommendation that we've been implementing, more volume per session, uh, because you know if it's limited load, uh, limited reach to the muscle and far stimulus, you, you sort of have to like, you can think of like a, the training stimulus as a nail that's stuck out of a piece of wood. And if you have a really big hammer, the gym, you can do like three or four or five sets of hammer and then the nail is all the way in the wood. That if you're at home, you can think of more of like a small ball peen hammer. You're going to have to hammer it a bit more times to get it to go down as much, right? So, you know, like people say like, oh my God, you did like 10 sets of chest today. You're like, yeah, but it was deficit push-ups and really lightweight dumbbell incline press. 10 sets and like my pecs aren't even sore the next day. Uh, I can feel totally fine and tomorrow I'll do chest again. And then so so get ready to do more potentially if you need to. The way to auto-regulate that is how much you know disruption do you feel at the muscle? How much of a pump do you feel? Like if you do four sets of deficit push-ups and your chest is pumped out of control and you can barely move your pecs, stop, fucking stop, stop. <laughs> because you're gonna get so sore you're gonna be able to train productively for days on end. But if you, whatever your limited at-home training, let's say you have just one set of dumbbells and you're doing curls, three sets of curls, usually with a barbell and machine and you're zoned out, you're toast, your biceps are, are barely working. But like three sets later at home with dumbbells, you're like, eh, like they feel fine. Keep going until they feel relatively not fine, until they've been disrupted and until they have a pretty decent pump. And then lastly, um, even with adjusting the magnitude of the session, as far as stimulus, adjusting it up, Sometimes that's not very possible. It, even if you don't manage that ad, uh, adjustment, you can always adjust on frequency. So people, some people would say, you know, I, chest, I train chest twice a week with barbells and dumbbells and heavy shit. Now that I'm at home, I, it, like, I can do 15 sets of push-ups and weird dumbbell stuff, but it doesn't hammer me like it used to. What's okay? You can train three times a week. Hammer it less. You'll heal faster. And then you can Monday, Wednesday, Friday chest instead of Monday, Thursday. And people are like, well, what if it's not even when I was a Friday? Just do it four times a week for the love of God. Like if someone is to tell me like, hey, I have access to be able to do deficit push-ups, and um, I can do them slowly centric and somebody can even put a bit of weight on my back. So I can do them for sets of like 20 to 30. You know, if I do between four and eight sets of, you know, chest like that, you know, how many days a week? should I be able to recover for as far as frequency? And I would be very shocked if someone could do that for three sessions a week. I mean, usually your pecs would get sore for at least two days after and you have to take a break, right? So if someone's like, should I really be training chest every day? You can, that's an option, but also you can train chest so hard that maybe two or three times a week, but you may need to scale the frequency up if you can't put the in-session stimulus. So basically engineering the exercises well to hit the target muscles, being creative, using exercise variations of really standard movements that you have in, in different ways, which we talked about is a really good idea. Training closer to failure than you normally would and then implementing things like supersets and Maya reps. And then lastly, uh, uh, or sec second to last, is um, maybe doing more volume per session than you're used to and or doing more sessions per week for the same muscle group. And here's a really good news. You may look at this and be like, fuck, I'm supposed to be training how much now in order to get these gains that I used to? You could say, this is a really inefficient way to train. Yeah, no shit. That's why we have gyms. Like the literal purpose of gyms in the technical sense is to maximize the stimulus to fatigue ratio and the stimulus to time ratio. Mostly the latter. Like, you know, could you get big legs training at home with a pair of dumbbells? Yeah. It would just take way more time because it would more frequent sessions, more per session, and so on and so forth. You'd accumulate way more fatigue because most of the reps are not very hypertrophic until the last few, so on and so forth. So your SFR and STR are really bad. The gym is a place you go to maximize SFR and STR. So, but you don't have the gym anymore, which I'll get to in just a sec, because psychologically how to approach that. So you have to accept the fact that your stimulus to fatigue ratio is not going to be as great, uh, which is, is, is okay because you have all the time right now to spend at home and do fuck all. Either you work from home now or you're taking a break from work. 
you, I know you motherfuckers out there shop buying all the food so you don't have food problems because the grocery store is half empty every single time and it's not the healthy food. I have no problem buying. I'm on a cutting diet right now. It's zero problem buying healthy food, but all the frozen pizzas are gone. I can eat all these frozen pizzas. So you, you eat food, you're getting tons of sleep. You know, even if you work at home, you get tons more sleep and you're way lower stress because you don't have to drive around. You don't have to see anybody. Uh, you can't afford the lower fatigue uh, or sorry, the higher fatigue cost. So that's fine. And then what about the stimulus to time ratio? Like it's, it's less efficient. Like you're, you have to work out more because you have to do all the body parts and more sets per session and more sessions per week. Of course, that's more, right? In some sense, it might not take as much time because if you factor in time commuting to the gym and back, that's the time spent better because you're training at home. And also your rest times might be shorter, but not always, right? So it is actually not that much more time. But then you think, okay, what if I have a lot of time uh, that would be possible. Hold on a sec, you do have a lot of time. You're sitting at home, quarantined up. You can train on many days, twice a day. Uh, you know, like back in the morning, shoulders and biceps at night. And then, you know, legs in the morning on the next day and chest, shoulders, triceps in the evening on the other. Do that a couple times a week. And all of a sudden, you know, you can smash all this volume together and actually get really, really great gains training with minimal equipment with relatively light weight. I love that. I think that kind of covers literally every problem or issue or excuse people create and it, and it really comes down to that created creative programming side um and and i love what you touched on with just effort because i think a lot of people assume you know a push-up is so much easier than a bench press so it's not going to be as effective and it's you just have to make that push-up as effective through watching your rir and pushing it and obviously mm -hmm. that's easier to do with a bench press but um nonetheless it can still be done so i, lo I love it can that still be done. That. yeah and just just one last thing to the point of psychology um you know, people say like, oh man, like it's, it's easy to default into picking up your dumbbells, starting to curl them. And they're like twenties, but you usually use the forties and like halfway through be like, fuck, like this sucks. Like I want, I want the gym back. Right. But you're expecting the workout. And some people are like, they're reconstructing their gym workout as a proxy to what they, they, they're reconstructing it at home. So they're thinking like, okay, back day pull-ups. Okay. How do I do that? I don't have anywhere to do pull-ups, but I need a vertical pulling component. No, you don't. You can grow for months off horizontal pulling alone. Your lats still work damn near the same way. So you have to rethink. And a lot of it, it'll be like multiple muscle groups can be trained in the same session. You could do two a day stuff you would never do in the gym. So I think a lot of people are sort of like in this thing where they're kind of like, oh, I want this to be the gym and they want to make it as close to gym as possible or just get frustrated and be like, this is the gym that sucks. It's the people who can give up on their fitness goals. The thing is, that's easy to do, and it's totally understandable. Like, look, I, I hate this shit. I hate viruses. I hope genetic engineering advances over the next 10 or 20 years, which probably will. We just won't have viruses anymore. It's stupid as hell. Uh, but the shit is real. So what you may benefit from doing, and this took me a few days to do personally, um, you know, all this bullshit fitness professionals seem like we have all the fucking answers, but it's all Instagram filtered bullshit. Because like in our own private lives, we falter, we fail, we fucking regress. Like the first day that I realized I wasn't going to be able to go to the gym, like the first thing I said to Charlie, my training partner was, fuck, fuck. Like it was this fucking panic. And then like I calmed down several seconds thereafter, but I didn't like to hear it. But the thing is, is they're like, yeah, we all catch ourselves being like, this is bullshit. Just, you know, let yourself feel those feelings. And as they sort of naturally recede, so every feeling naturally recedes. If you don't stay maximally pissed for so long until you're like, eh. and then once you get to the man part, you're like, okay. Let me just try to do my best blank slate. I'm at home, period. I got these two fucking dumbbells, period, or this thing, this band thing, or I got nothing. Let me be super creative, maybe even try to have some fun with it and do my best. And then all of a sudden you, you give birth to this beautiful new program and you're having a great time following. Just on novelty alone, it's super interesting and you're making great gains. And all of a sudden, you know, before you know it, you're going to be able to go back to the gym and you're going to either have a fun story and great results, or you're going to have a not fun story of you bitching and quitting the gym and quitting training. And then you'll be back to the gym. Like most people in way worse shape uh, because they let, you know, the sadness and stuff like that. Um, you know, either ate, ate a bunch more and did a bunch less because they were some people stuck in that mindset of, I can't go to the gym then there's no point for me to even train because fuck this halfway bullshit. Well, it might not even be halfway. It might be a little bit more effort and it might actually cause you net gains uh, and maintaining muscle super easy. So you can for sure maintain all your gains. So it's one of these psychological sort of flips you have to make and it takes some time. It's okay. It takes some time, 
But at the end of that, you might be like, hey, you know what? Like, let me just try, try to do as best as I can. I will say, though, now that I have been on that positive note, I did get a, a comment on Instagram of someone's like, like, after the quarantine's over, do you still think you'll use, like, your rooftop gym for a lot of your training? I'm like, no, fuck no, man. The thing is outside. The wind is blowing us over. There's fucking rain in my face while I'm doing pull-downs. Fuck that. I love the gym. The gym is better. It just works, please. And then some other guy was like, like, I thought, I think all this is really fun. And I'm like, you know, man, fun's not how I would describe it. Although, like, I have to give that guy credit. Like, way to look at the bright side of shit. Yeah. I just, I just kind of... I don't want to live, get off, give off this air that like, hey, it's okay that there's a quarantine. It's not okay. The virus is not okay. The quarantine is necessary, but not okay. It sucks. It's very clear. I hate it. But now that we've gotten through that bullshit, you just want to make the best. Like, like if you're in hell, it sucks. But you got a lot of places to roast marshmallows and talk to pretty cool people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a good perspective to have. I think it's realistic, and I think that hopefully this one shifts a lot of people into staying more consistent with their health because that's the best preventative care that we can have. Um, but do also, think? do you think that's going to work? Because so, so let me, let me, I'm going to ask you this question real quick, but I got to preface it. Now you thought you were interviewing me. Now it's backwards. <laughs> I really am curious to, cause I respect your intelligence a lot. I'm really curious to, to hear your perspective on this. I made a post on Facebook and, and Instagram, which you may or may not have seen that was like, Hey, like after the doctors and nurses are done with like find the front lines, like fitness professionals, you're up next because the humongously vast majority of people that are most at risk for this are people that are wildly out of shape. And uh, I think they're going to be like more interested to some extent to get their health better. And then I had some very intelligent people who I also very highly respect respond publicly to me on that post and be like, look, Mike, I see where you're coming from, but I don't think most people are going to change a fucking thing. I think like six months after this is all over, you know, people are going to be like, Meh. and then like, you know, cause like the flu also kills people that are in, in, demographics a little less um, of a bias but still a, a significant bias and those folks already like metabolic syndrome i mean like heart disease makes covid19 look like a sick joke you know what i mean like and all those people like heart disease is way biased to that category of people that are over uh over fat and out of shape but it doesn't budge them hardly at all what do you think is covid19 going to be the thing that wakes up a lot of people or is it going to be like fewer than we'd like i think i I want to believe that it's going to change a lot of people. And it's cool because I do see more doctors being into fitness and promoting trainers and nutritionists, stuff like that. I mean, you guys have uh, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. He's a perfect. Yeah, huge. Um, we have a doctor out here that is, he was actually a strength coach on a football team. And now he's a, he's actually oh, wow. my doctor for a long time. So he follows all of our stuff and does, uh, we actually live in the same neighborhood now. And he was saying the same thing that he hopes that he keeps promoting it. But I think you're right. I think that, I think the people already into fitness will be really into fitness because of this. And then I think that the people who were never, uh, I don't know if this will be a big enough light bulb because I don't know if anything ever will be, you know, um, unfortunately, but I hope. Yeah. So. Yeah. You said it. We'll so. see. Um, no, but I love all that. Uh, I think that's all great perspectives for people to take in. And, and I actually, it's funny cause I referred to that last post that you just talked about on one of my podcasts cause I agree with you and, and I was talking. Oh. It, so, um, it's cool that you brought it up. Uh, but, um, moving into the next topic, I kind of want to, and you mentioned you're, you're on a diet phase right now, so this will be kind of cool to hear your take on it, but I'd love to kind of hear, uh, both sides of training and nutrition for you and, and what you tend to focus on. You know, there's a lot of people who still to this day just slash carbs as soon as they go into a diet. So I'd love to hear your talk about like where your carbs should be at and if, if you can still have a high carb diet and, and when that's applicable, but also what you do with volume, what do you do with intensity? Do you change anything or are you just keep it exactly the same and maybe your loads drop a little bit as the deficit proceeds and you just keep everything the same or are you tweaking a lot during this diet? I twerk a lot during the diet because my glutes start to look better. <laughs> um, so great questions. Let's start perhaps from a large theoretical umbrella and dig our way down to the more specifics. Theoretically, your training shouldn't change much when you're cutting. Much. It will train a, change a little bit. But if someone told me, hey, listen, I'm doing a cut. It's been super successful. I haven't changed my training at all. I'm still training to grow. Is that bad? I can't say it's bad. You know, that fundamentally, you're right on, right? Um, it's like, uh, like a car in an average American city that gets some snow in the winter. If someone's like, hey, I don't change my car or my tires anyway, in any way from winter to summer. Like, is that bad? I'd be like, you're fine. You're, you're fine, right? If you just say that in Alaska, you know, okay, maybe you could really have... Huge advantages, but in most of America, whatever, same tires, whatever. 
is there an advantage from getting like, snow tires or whatever? Sure, there is, but it, but it's small. And we'll get to that the analogy of what I mean, like how do you change your training? But we'll get to that in a sec. For the diet, the most fundamental thing is just creating a deficit, right? Um, you just create a caloric deficit. Now, drilling down to the details of diet, there is a little bit more of an impactful question. If you slash your carbs, you are slashing a nutrient that is very anti-catabolic, prevents muscle loss, it supports brain activity very, very well, and thus nervous system uh, output and your ability to train hard. And it uh, supports glycogen, which is hugely interactive with muscle as uh, a regulator. So if you have high glycogen levels, you're anti-catabolic, just at a baseline. If your glycogen starts to get very low, your muscle cells actually lose muscle faster, which is really intense, and it prevents it from growing muscle after training. So uh, all that taken together, you kind of want to keep your carbs around as much as possible. And the only nutrient that beats out carbs is protein, but nobody cuts protein, so we don't have to address that, right? So then you, you figure, okay, like if I cut my carbs a lot, I get to eat more fats. What's the advantage of that? Well, you know, above their minimum amounts uh, that you need for hormonal activity, so on and so forth, extra fats don't really do a whole lot, you know? Um, and per calorie, they're not super filling. Um, so, you know, people say like, oh, fats keep me full. Well, yeah, motherfucker, that's because they have nine calories per gram, goddammit. Like, you know, per gram, they're really filling, but that's like extra, extra five calories you get in there. So I think that it's probably a good idea for most folks when they start a cut to start to cut their fats uh, closer and closer to the minimum amount, roughly 0.3 grams per pound of body weight per week, or sorry, per day. So like, if you weigh around 200 pounds, that means like 60 grams of fat and less is probably not a good idea. But like something, you know, 60 in the north is fine. So if you're normally eating uh, like, you know, 120 grams of fat per day as a 200 pounder, which is not unreasonable, you know, if you, whatever calorie deficit you have to get to, if it's above 60 grams of fat, just go there. You know, let's say your first cut is to 80 grams of fat per day from 120. I mean, so that's 40 grams of fat. Uh, and then, right, am I, is my math right? Yeah, 80 to 120 is 40 grams of fat. Uh, seven times four, that's, or sorry, um, uh, four times nine is uh, 36, but it says 360 calorie deficit you just created, add in a little bit more activity, and that's a 500 calorie per day deficit. That's a pound a week for like many, many weeks, just cutting from 120 to 80 grams of fat. And it just means you fundamentally still eat the same foods. You just put like a little bit less olive oil in the shit. You switch from regular chicken sausage to lean chicken sausage. You go from whatever kind of ground beef you're eating to like leaner ground beef. Like it's really not the end of the world, right? And it's such a super change. And you still stay super full. You still eat tons of fruits, tons of veggies, tons of whole grains. Because if you cut your carbs, man, you're ditching a whole lot of good stuff and a lot of filling food and a lot of food that supports muscle growth and energy, so on and so forth. Now, when people say like, oh, like, you know, the RP people, they try to keep their carbs high, but like I bought one of their diets and it slashed my carbs. Well, that's because it's done slashing your fats because you don't run out of fats to slash. At some point, if you're not losing weight and you're being less active and so on and so forth, and if you want to get super lean, you got to slash a lot of stuff, right? So at some point, carbs will start to be cut uh, to some to some extent, but that's only after you've cut your fat. So what we absolutely like to see at RP is folks cut as many of the fats as they can until they get to the minimum before really touching their carbs a whole lot. What we don't like to see is folks out of the gate slashing carbs like crazy where they could have just slashed fats. Um, you know, the analogy there from us, since we do the car analogies all the time, you know, I would say like, you know, if you need to lighten up your car and you're a race car driver and you have a regular person's car, cutting fats is like taking out the seats from the car, like taking the entire seat out. Like you don't have to have seats in the back if you race the thing, if you're not driving passengers around, you don't even have to have the passenger seat. Now, what is the minimum fats in that analogy? Well, it's your own seat. <laughs> you don't pull that thing out, right? Because then you could drive the car, but it's grotesquely uncomfortable. You're not going to be a great racer. But at cutting carbs, would be something like, you know, uh, taking off uh, normal tires and putting on the bullshit replacement tires. Like, you know, the ones that if you pop a tire, you put it in and another 60 miles it goes. But yeah, like, can you ride your car? Sure, you gonna win any races? Not, not really, right? You know, the tires are very, very important. Seats, not so much. So that's kind of the analogy there. And of course, protein would be like the car frame and the engine, right? Never, ever mess with that. Um, but the rest is kind of valuable. So, uh, what do you think about that, uh, that perspective? There? I'm actually uh, very aligned with everything that you just said, and I, I actually approach it the exact same way. So it's cool to hear you say that too. And I'm a big fan of what you guys do. So I think it's, it's easy because I take in a lot of your guys' stuff. 
Um, You've already drank the Kool-Aid is what you're trying to say. You're already, already, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, when you shift gears to massing, uh, I know we're talking about fat loss right now, but what is the minimum fat? Because there's, there's, you know, a lot of people just say, oh, it's just calories, just getting a calorie surplus and they end up adding a ton of fat. But is there val value in actually keeping those fats pretty low and trying to crank up carbs as high as you possibly can? So for people that train a lot, for people that are advanced, for people that are really trying to maximize hypertrophy response, there are some theoretical reasons uh, dare I say hypothetical reasons that higher carbohydrate in, intakes and not a ton more fat intakes during massing is a really good idea. Um, to, to people that to huge advantage comes to professional bodybuilders that use insulin and growth hormone for them, high carb massing is pretty much the only way to go. Uh, not the only way to go, but it's a huge, huge benefit. For most folks who are not taking absurd drugs or not professional bodybuilders, there's still a benefit to getting plenty of carbs certainly above minimum intakes for your activity. And there's some good arguments that most of your surplus should still come from carbs. You get better pumps, pumps potentiate growth. Insulin is anabolic, although it's greatly anti-catabolic, but if you can lower catabolism while mildly increasing anabolism, you get a lot of muscle gains. Um, and there's uh, multiple other factors there that are involved. Uh, and uh, if you look at the... Uh, fraction of adiposity that occurs. If you eat fat, it has a very ch high chance of getting incorporated into your body fat. If you eat carbs, less. They have to go through more biochemical steps. A lot of times they just raise your body temperature and burn up and, and not a whole lot happens. It'll make you more active. Um, proteins are very, very uh, poorly adipogenic. So if you eat excess protein, it's not even clear, according to some researchers, if you can gain a whole lot of fat like that. Um, so it, there, is, there are some very small benefits to higher carbs that I think are worth it. But I do want to say that for regular people, uh, massing can be an opportunity to eat a lot of tasty foods that are pretty decent mix of fats and carbs. So what I would say to most people is, you know, high carb, sort of uh, exotic high carb massing like myself and several of my training partners and other folks um, associated do, in which you do like 700 grams of carbs and 80 grams of fats a day, which is kind of insane. It's way too many carbs to ratio to fats. We eat like essentially bodybuilding food and then a lot of it, which sucks, right? We're, the advantage we have over that, over regular massing, where it's more high fat, is very small. If any, you know, we're, we're, I, I'm betting that there is an advantage, but I made my reading of the literature and inference from it, but I, I can't say it's like, you know, for sure, right? Uh, what I can say is, you know, maybe like a five or 10% boost for advanced athletes. Um, for beginners, they may not even notice intermediates, it could barely be a thing. What I don't want people to do is abandon their massing journey because they're like, I'm tired of eating brown rice. I'm tired of drinking Gatorade. I want a fucking cheeseburger. Um, I think that's totally fine for beginners and, and intermediates and folks that want to do a more mixed fat and carb mass. I would just say, you know, when you can eat clean, so to speak, maximize your carbs, minimize your fats, eat mostly whole foods. And then it's okay to, to have some, some extra fats to go along with it. So an individual, for example, and let's say he's eating uh, 250 grams of protein and is eating, uh, well, let's say it's 200 pound person, 200 grams of protein and 600 grams of carbs and sort of 60 fats. That's their mass gain macros. I mean, that's a very, very sort of elite, like you're basically fats are the same cutting and massing. You just raise the carbs. Is that ideal? I would say it's close to ideal in many cases or, or very, very close to the ideal, maybe 60 to 80, get a little bit more of a hormonal response from going up to 80 or not much more after that. Uh, what about a person who wants to do a good job but isn't trying to be like an insane person? I think like, first of all, a couple cheat meals a week with super high fats is totally fine, even for the elite person. But for the regular person, I think if we see fat intakes of something like 100 or 120 or 130 or 40 or 50 grams per day, that's totally fine, I think. And then, you know, the carbs would commonly come down to like the 400 to 500 gram range. It's still a ton of carbs. What I don't want to see is somebody eating like 250 grams of fat per day and only getting 200 grams of carbs per day and being like, woo, I'm massing. Like that actually will still work and you'll still gain muscle very well. But I don't think it comes close to really optimizing the thing. Um, although it is fun. It's fun as hell uh, to eat that many fats. So like our diet app at RP, that there's a you know, robot coach or whatever, when it programs uh, massing phases, it, you know, it almost never shoots for that 60% or that's that 60 gram of fat for the 200 pound person. Absolutely not. This is not designed for professional bodybuilders. Um, eventually we'll have updates where you can just pick your own macros and we'll just do whatever you want. But uh, for the time being, it really does shoot that middle. Like 
you know, we probably kick like something like 100 to 120 grams of fat for that person, right? You're doing a great job, but it's not an anal great job. And you can have some full fat ground beef without being like, hey, massing time. And someone's like, woo, time to eat. You're like, yeah, time to eat more 97.3 turkey and think of, you know, ways to kill myself. Like, it's definitely not that. So I think, I think there's some nuance there where, you know, there's a huge chasm between really just eating cheeseburgers and making an excuse of it versus doing a great job and having some fun along the way versus being a, a super elite robot. And I think that for most people, that middle category is really where you want to be. I love that. I agree hundred um, percent. As you shift into training, uh, coming back to that, the, the cutting and the fat loss phase and how you're changing your training. Um, I'd love to hear how you're structuring that and what you are tweaking, if you are tweaking anything. Totally. So fundamentally you have to come to the realization that during a mesocycle of cutting, your minimum effective volume is going to be higher to start with because you have to provide more anti-catabolism. That is if you're trying to recomp, and most people can to some extent. If you're not trying to recomp, if you're pretty advanced and you're cutting very hard, then you actually are concerned with your maintenance volume. But because you're advanced and because the hypocaloric condition of a fat loss phase is so intrusive at that point, your maintenance volume actually starts to rise considerably. So much higher than it normally is. You know, People say like, oh, you need to train only a third of your normal volume to maintain. Yeah, that's if you're not losing weight. If you're losing weight, it easily just jumps right up to half. And if you're advanced losing weight, it could be like 0.8 or 0.9 or 1.0 of what you normally train in order to not lose muscle. So first there's that. And second of all, there's the behavior of the maximum recoverable volume. So we have the minimum effective volume as the beginning of your mesocycle cycle as the bottom. Maximum recoverable volume when you're losing fat is normally up here for maintenance. It's a little higher for massing because it's extra resources. For cutting, it comes down considerably. Okay, so now like, you know, Every mesocycle is essentially turns to be a walk like, uh, from minimum effective volume all the way to maximum recoverable, but now the walk is short, shorter, way shorter. So for example, in a normal isocaloric phase or massing phase, um, your minimum, uh, your, let's just call it maintenance volume because let's say we're cutting just to, to maintain our mass. We, we're not expecting any more gains. Um, you know, your maintenance volume could normally be like uh, you know, six or actually well, your minimum effective volume because you start at minimum effective when you're massing, right? Not maintenance. It could be 10 sets minimum effective volume, 20 sets per week, just as an example, maximum recoverable. That's on a, a muscle gain phase. On a fat loss phase for a relatively advanced individual, same individual, their maintenance uh, volume could actually be like 12 sets per week, which is like, oh, holy shit, like, that's even higher than your minimum effective. Like, yeah, because there's no goddamn food anywhere. <laughs> and your body wants to slough off muscle and it needs a really, really powerful signal to be like, don't do that. We still need this muscle. Um, and then your maximum recoverable can end up being like uh, 14. And you say, well, geez, why is it 14? Like, well, it's the end of the meso. So you've already been accumulating fatigue the entire time and progressively having more and more weeks summated of low calories, right? Like one week into low calories, you feel fine. Six weeks into low calories, you feel less fine. And if you're accumulating volume and intensity and just training the entire time, accumulating fatigue, it, uh, MRV swings down to meet you, so to speak, right? Um, so it's like asking someone, you know, on a, like a ruck march of like 40 miles, like, how do you feel after a mile of marching? How do your shoes feel? They're like, great. You know, what about after mile 39? They're not going to be like, great. They're going to be like, I want them off. Like, I, it, you know, the shoes caught up to me, right? Um, so you end up thinking, okay, how do I design my progressions if I'm starting at 12 sets roughly and going only just to 14? Well, you probably don't want to jump and load a ton between weeks, right? So normally you'd squat like 300 pounds in week one, 310 in week two, 320 in week three, and so on and so forth. Maybe you want to go 300 in week one, 305 in week two, because you know you just, you're not making adaptations acutely that quickly, right? Your reps and reserves swing down to meet you much faster. So you're going to be adding less weight to the bar. If you're adding reps, you're going to add fewer reps week to week. Same applies to sets. You're just not going to, so like, for example, week one could be 12 sets. Week two could be 12 sets. Week three could be 13 sets. Week four could be 14 MRV deload repeat. We're supposed to usually, you would either be able to go up by two sets each time to get from 10 to 20, or you just take much longer to do a mesocycle. The thing is people say like, well, can I just go up by the same amount and just do shorter mesocycles? Well, deloading during cutting probably requires you to stop cutting to really bring down fatigue effectively. So we don't want to do it a whole lot. So I would say it's better not to go up like this real fast, but to stretch it out so that the ascension in sets and load and reps is less steep, but the mass cycle still lasts as long. So if you typically do four weeks of accumulation uh, on a mass, on a cut, I would still do four weeks of accumulation, but I would increase the load 
less, increase the reps by fewer numbers and increase the sets by fewer numbers, sometimes not increasing the sets at all week to week, which your auto-regulation should handle if you're auto-regulating it um, anyway, but just being, um, you know, not jumping into the fire as fast because you're much more flammable when you're on a cut, so to speak. So uh, I would say that that's probably the best way to handle that. And then what repetition ranges you choose is a, is a much smaller concern. So your, your original question, which I still haven't answered, is like, do you train lighter or heavier? Uh, and the answer to that is that's actually a very small point. Um, do you progress quickly in heavyweight or lightweight? No, right? So if you wanted to train heavy when you're cutting, like I'm gonna do sets of five to 10 in the stiff leg and deadlift, great. You normally start at 315 pounds and you progress to like 335. Mm -hmm maybe you're progressing only to 325 now. Does that, does that make sense? So like a lot of people, when they think I'm training heavy, they think they're going to make the same jumps from heavy to heavy to heavy to heavy to heavy uh, every week. And that's just not going to be the case anymore. Lastly, sometimes, so we already know volume is more important than load for retention of mass or for, for muscle growth, for sure. And very likely for the retention of mass. So if the five to 10 rep range, the heavy range beats you up proportionally more than the others, which may or may not happen, there's a good argument for doing a bit less of that and doing a bit more of the 10 to 20 rep range and the 20, 30 rep range because it's just more sustainable, um, especially because uh, at the end of a cutting phase for very uh, experienced folks, joint, in, not integrity, but like sort of your, uh, your joints might not feel as great. Uh, connective tissue recovery may, may really be uh, something that you know, uh, it really holds you back. Uh, I was talking to Meadow Henselman's recently and he said that you know, especially for naturals, if you get some kind of tweak or injury when you're cutting, like the shit just never fucking heals. Like it takes forever to heal. So knowing that is to some extent true, you can say, okay, where am I most likely to experience an acute injury? Well, for sure the five to 10 rep range. I mean, like, cause you know, if you get, if you're going to get hurt, it's going to be usually for high momentary absolute forces. Um, you know, who the hell gets hurt on a set of 20 to 30? Like that's really tough to pull off, right? If you're going to hurt a set 20, 30, you're probably going to get hurt like getting out of bed shit like that, right? It's just not that much force. So maybe you say, okay, towards the end of a cut, more than normal, I'm going to bias my training a bit more into the higher rep ranges and a bit away from the lower rep ranges so that my joints don't take as much of a beating so that I can just make it through the training, put in the work, is it the best way to gain muscle? Maybe not even, but it's certainly good enough to maintain injury-free without a ton of joint trouble, so on and so forth. Um, that is, uh, there's, there's a slight hypothetical where your muscles technically in a hypocaloric state extended will start to behave a bit more slow twitch than fast twitch um, uh, than they were. And then uh, higher rep training uh, actually may be even more conducive to them at that point. But that's the same line of argument as perhaps training should be lightened up towards the end of a fat loss diet. I almost feel like it's, it's what a lot of people think, but just for different reasons. A lot of totally. people even think that doing higher reps is going to burn more calories. And that's why. Yeah, it will by a tiny fraction, but most of your calories get burned from daily activity or cardio or just being alive. And most calories should be handled like diet anyway, for sure. Another another reason I've heard before is like we're going to etch in the details with higher reps. Like, I don't even not even so sure what that means. Like, is that what's happening? Right? That's not really the case. So, um, but yeah, like like you said, just for slightly different reasons. But I think you know how people do things and how they justify them are two different things. And I, bodybuilders almost unanimously train a bit lighter when they get closer to contest prep. Um, over many, many, many years. And they have all kinds of interesting reasons for them, which may or may not be true. But I think as a whole, they've stumbled onto something that's probably more right than it is wrong. And you can train very heavy relatively all the way into a show uh, or all the way into the end of a cutting diet. But uh, there are some downsides that should give you pause. And if you have sort of calculated for them and acknowledged them, they're not a big deal. You found ways around them. That's totally cool. And you can continue to train relatively heavy. Uh, it's just something to think about if you think you have to train heavy coming into a, the end of a fat loss phase, that's false. So you can just abandon that view altogether and then come in at, uh, at the problem in a fresh face and think, okay, now that I know I don't have to train heavy, why would I train heavy or why would I not? And then the answer, like, for, for, so for example, stiff legged deadlifts for higher reps just don't work to hit your hands because your back fails first. And, uh, you know, if you don't do any kind of hip hinging, you notice your hamstrings just visibly get smaller, you lose size in your glutes, so on and so forth. 
then maybe, yeah, there's a very good uh, element there of reasoning to say, okay, for good mornings, for hamstrings, uh, for stuff like deadlifts, for some deadlifts and stuff, I'm going to continue to train the 510 rep range. I'm just not going to be as aggressive with increasing the load. Maybe I'll just keep the same load or do a rep more here, there, maybe not even just like, just hit the, just try to hit the same kind of stuff towards, you know, last three weeks, you might literally do the same workout for hamstrings. Just keep what you got, keep what you got, keep what you got. And that might be totally fine to do heavy. But if you're like, you know, chest, like I could train heavier, I could train it light. And usually I want a diversity of loading uh, because, you know, it supports all the different pathways of growth. Like, do I really need all the different pathways of growth in the last two weeks of a cut? No. What if I just do high rep chest work? Will that really cost me? No. So then why aren't you doing that? Well, then you can sort of convince yourself to do that. Love it. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think it's a, it's a good way to round out the podcast and, and give people applicable stuff because uh, I think too many people change too much of their training when they go into a cut. And some people, like you said, and I'm glad you brought up the point of just getting injured because a lot of people don't change it at all. And then they end up getting hurt or nagging pains. Um, and it's funny because, and I think you've, I've heard you say this on another podcast before. If you look at uh, some of what the like bodybuilders in the 90s and the early 2000s or even just bros over the years have done without knowing why, some of that stuff actually just works and you should actually follow. I mean, even like high carb dieting, like we were talking about before, mm-hmm. most older bodybuilders, they followed something like that. And there was, there was a reason behind it. Not Almost a all modern bodybuilders do. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so following suit of like the bros or the bro science is actually sometimes valuable. It's just that you, some people don't understand why they don't know the science behind it. Yeah, I think it's really important, uh, and there's been far more intellectual due diligence done to this topic than I will ever do in the next 30 seconds. Um, if, you, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole of this shit, uh, there is a, a book in uh, technical, as you call it, it's, it's off, offshoot of economics, uh, called Knowledge and Decisions by Thomas Sowell. Good luck reading it. I had to read it three times to make any sense out of the thing. It's a tome. It's it's insanely complicated. But one of the very main points in that book is uh, there can be sort of two types of experts. Ideally, the best expert is of both. There is an expert in what's called articulated knowledge, like things you can explain and you have reasons for. Um, And then there's an expert in what you can also call implicit knowledge, uh, where they just do things that are right, and they may not even have the wherewithal to explain why they do them, but they just fucking work, and they've been doing something so long and carefully observing it so long that even though if they can't explain it accurately, they may lack, lack the physiology to explain it, they might uh, you know, still be onto some really, really good stuff. Ideally, you have both, but I wouldn't just look down on people who have only implicit knowledge and not uh, the knowledge that you can articulate uh, as being like, oh, well, those guys are idiots and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, so, for example, bros for years or, or decades for forever and bodybuilders have been saying, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how heavy the weight is, you know, you got to make the muscle feel like the weight's heavy. And that sounds stupid as hell to like a beginner in exercise science, but it just to make any sense. Like muscles don't feel anything. But after you learn a lot of exercise and sports science, uh, and especially in the modern era, we got so many great research studies being put out by so many people around the world and folks like James Krieger, Greg Knuckles are describing them, folks like Brad Schoenfeld doing them. All of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, local per fiber muscle tension probably is mostly what causes hypertrophy. And if you approach failure uh, with an isolated movement and you're not neurally or centrally limited and it's the local muscle that's limited, then you're going to get a lot of hypertrophy. Like that's a very fancy way of saying exactly the same shit. And, but, but the action is always the same. It was like when you do barbell curls, make sure your bicep is receiving the load. And even if it's lightweight, make sure you're really squeezing, really feeling it, already been by my muscle connections, been vetted, making sure you're producing a ton of tension in that muscle relative to its abilities. Like that is great that I could articulate that for you, but the bros have been implicitly doing it for generations and that's why they look better than everybody else, right? So at the very least, if someone, if you suspect, how do you suspect someone has implicit knowledge that you may find valuable? that they're successful, right? Like if, if someone's a farmer and they don't even fucking hardly speak, like, you know, like they're just like, well, I don't know. This is how I've been doing things forever. If they have no productive agriculture whatsoever, you don't really have to worry about what it is they think about how soil works because they're clearly fucking have no idea what they're doing. But if there have been like 10 generations of unbelievably productive corn farming, they can't really explain what they're doing. But I tell you what, the soil is best if you do this. And like, why do you do this? And like, I don't know, it just works. I don't know, man. He's got an unbelievable track record of making phenomenal corn. He's probably onto something, right? You don't just like reinvent farming because you did the one book of like food science or something. So if someone has success, have some reverence for it. 
be curious. Now, they might be wrong, totally. And a lot of people do stuff that works and a bunch of other shit that just doesn't work. They just layer on top, like, oh, I do this for this. Like, you're an idiot. That doesn't work. But have some reverence and think they might be coming at it from a good perspective. And for people that can articulate knowledge very well, make sure that you have reverence for them, for sure. Like, you know, nerds and shit like that. Uh, but also have some, just like for the people who have implicit knowledge that have success, have some sort of skepticism and be like, well, I'm not sure everything you're saying or everything you're doing is a good idea for the implicit people. For the articulate people, not everything they're saying is a good idea. People make all kinds of conjectures that are just wildly wrong because they just don't have any experience or science hasn't caught up yet, or they're misappropriating science and concluding things it can't. So I would say that the best combination is, of course, somebody like yourself who's well-run in literature, knows the stuff, can't explain it, but also in the gym, working with clients, working with yourself, knowing how shit really works, that's really the best. But you know, you can't be all things to all people, neither can I. So we have to take insight from other experts of the two kinds. We gotta look at the people who just have shredded glutes and way too 80 and take some wisdom from them, some, not all. And then the nerd experts on PubMed and take some wisdom from them and not all, combine it the best way we can. And that's how I think we, we do the best job. I think it's uh, like you said, you know, the bros have been doing a high carb dieting all along and now we're starting to figure out like, oh yeah, that is kind of a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, and then a lot of the other shit they do that just make any goddamn sense. So always, always time to combine those two. I love that. I think you put that together really well. I want to respect your time. Um, I appreciate all the information, man. This was a really good podcast. Um, I'm going to link that blog that you mentioned about the at-home workouts. Do you have anything else that you want people to check out? Um, yeah, I mean, while we're, while we're plugging shit, now you know what, that actually the at-home workout thing has the plug in it for. We have an at-home workout template that you can buy for super cheap, and it just... It, you don't have to think about all this stuff. It just tells you what to do. And there's video instructions for everything. And then a lot of them, I'm yelling at you. So, uh, you know, if you want to torture yourself for great gains at home with just a pair of dumbbells, give that some thought. But uh, otherwise, uh, that's all I got. And I highly recommend everybody go check out the YouTube because you've been putting out a lot of really good content on your guys' YouTube uh, channel of just even the ones in the gym before this happened, but now the at-home workout. So highly recommend that. Thank you so much. More to come on YouTube. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.